Hello, listeners. From home or on the road, catch a favorite story. You are listening to Catch the Story, the podcast where in each episode we bring you great stories told by dear storytellers. I'm your host, Lucia Matuonto, and it's time to catch the story. Our first storyteller is Pat Beckley, a 72-year young lady who embarked on her writing journey just two years ago and has already published seven acclaimed books. I was 41 years old when I married for the second time, full of hope and anticipation that this was going to be it, the final romantic interlude of my life. I'd only known him for a very short time, just a few months, but I've always been one to, to follow my heart. And so when I felt a little flutter, I thought, okay, this, this will work. Particularly, as he said, it would be quite nice to try and have a baby. And that was something that I'd always wanted. So the first couple of years were great. Well, almost great. I lost a couple of babies, which was which was very hard. But then I had my beloved daughter when I was 43. And life just continued very happily for a few years. Obviously, in, in a family, you get very involved in the rest of your family's life. So there's not much time for you. But that is a very small price to pay for the joy you get. After seven years of marriage, my husband suddenly announced that he wanted a divorce. He was unhappy. He wouldn't tell me why. He wouldn't discuss it. And for several months, he he went back and forth, couldn't decide whether to go or stay. And in the end, he decided to stay. Fast forward another seven years, and he had a similar thing. Only this time, he actually said that he was in love with someone else. Obviously, I was horrendously shocked and I suggested he go and be with her if she mattered that much to him. But again, after a few months of prevarication, he decided to stay with us. Then just before my, just after my 67th birthday, we were away for a weekend and staying in a very nice hotel. And I woke up in the morning to find him making a cup of tea. Uh, which was not unusual because he made a cup of tea almost every morning of our married life. And I said to him, are you all right, love? You seem very quiet. And he said, and his words will stick forever in my mind. No, I'm not all right, actually. I don't love you anymore. I haven't loved you for years. Our marriage is over and I'm not coming back to live in New Zealand. We were in England at the time. As you can imagine, I was so shocked. I was just stunned. I didn't know what to say, what to do. Obviously, I cried and all the normal things, but somehow we got through the day. He didn't want to tell our daughter at that time. Um, I think he just didn't know how to, really. Uh, but at the end of the day, she, she was spending the, the weekend with us. And at the end of the day, she realized that something was up. And so I told her. It was a very horrendous time. But fast forward five years, um, and now I am a published author. In the two years, I started during COVID. This, 
this COVID was a time that changed very many of us, not necessarily for the better. But for me, it was a blessing because I was alone. That wasn't the blessing. I was alone. I was miserable. I spent the first three weeks of COVID, of lockdown, lying on my sofa, watching rubbish on Netflix and eating far too much chocolate. Uh, and then I thought, Pat, this is ridiculous. This could go on for a few more weeks. You you must do something. How naive I was to think it would only go on for a few more weeks. And so I thought, why don't you write a book? So I did. And a few months later, it was published. And I've now written seven and contributed to anthologies and been interviewed. And basically, I'm having a wonderful, wonderful time. None of which would have happened if it hadn't been for covid and my husband abandoning me. And so now here I am, age 72, a strong, independent, powerful woman. Um, not the people pleaser I've been my whole entire life, although obviously there's still little, little bits of that still there. Um, but basically, I'm now living a very good life, a life that I've made for myself. Um, and yeah, it just shows that sometimes if you can manage to bounce back when life becomes awful, it can be better. There can be better things around the corner. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Up next, we have Gabriel Constance. Gabriel's story, Picking Up the Pieces, is a touching narrative that underscores the importance of mental health. Gabriel is a multifaceted individual working as a novelist, screenwriter, journalist, and counselor. Be sure to watch his movie, the Last Conception, which is available now. Picking Up the Pieces by Gabriel Constance. Another restless night came slowly to an end. I was exhausted. My sheets were drenched in sweat. It had been months since my older brother Marcus had been murdered. Visions of his murder kept replaying on my mind like a bad commercial. Marcus had just thrown me his baseball glove. Take good care of it, little bro, he said. As I caught the mitt, I heard the shots pop, 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 and saw Marcus's look of shock as he crumbled to the ground. I froze. There was a long silence, then panic and chaos. People were running everywhere. I felt invisible. Marcus was lying face down, unmoving. Bright red blood was staining his shirt. It felt like the world had gone insane. In my mind, I kept screaming, what happened? I yelled at my brain to stop. I pulled the old blue bedspread over my head. I could hear the cars and buses outside and smell the fumes that drifted through my second story window. Jeremy, hurry up or you'll be late for school, mom called from the kitchen. I crawled out of bed and found my holy jeans and Raiders t-shirt on the wooden chair and some socks under the dresser. As I pulled on my socks, 
I couldn't avoid seeing Marcus's empty bed pushed up against the wall. Mom and Dad still hadn't taken it out of the room we shared. I sort of wanted them to take it away, didn't want them to at the same time. I could still imagine Marcus sitting on the side, throwing his pillow at my face. Time to get up, sleepyhead, he'd shout. I went to the bathroom and looked in the mirror at a sad stranger. My hair was a mess, my eyes were half closed and bloodshot. I looked awful and I felt worse. By the time I dragged myself into the kitchen for breakfast, Dad had already left for work. He's a truck mechanic and works long hours. He's big, strong, and proud. We used to spend more time together. He'd play catch, help me with homework, take me to a park or ball game. Lately, he's become irritable, flips out over the stupidest things, and ignores me. Last night, I accidentally interrupted him while he was talking on the phone, and he looked like he was going to kill me. He covered the phone with his hand, got all red in his face, and shouted, Get out of here, now! I was glad he'd already gone to work. Jeremy, you look tired. Are you okay? Mom asked without interest as she put a bowl of lumpy oatmeal on the table. Without waiting for an answer, she turned back toward the stove like a zombie. Yeah, I said, I'm fine. What else could I say? Whenever I mentioned Marcus, Mom and Dad changed the subject or all bent out of shape. Dad would look at me with daggers in his eyes, and Mom would drift off into a dream world. Living at home had become like the circus. I was constantly in the ring, walking a tightrope, afraid to make the slightest move. Mom and Dad weren't getting along with each other very well either. At night, I could hear them arguing. Marcus's murder was slowly killing us all. And yet, they kept acting as if nothing had happened. Someone locked loudly at the front door. Who is it? Mom yelled. It's just Alex, I said. I unlocked the deadbolt and opened the door. Alex stepped in. Hey, man, let's go, he said. Just a minute, I said. I went back to the table and grabbed my books. Alex and I had been buddies for years. I had other friends, but Alex was the one I trusted. We'd talk about everything under the sun. Sometimes he even knew what I was thinking before I said it. He lived with his mom in a fancy apartment building a few blocks away. Come on, said Alex, or we'll be late. He waited impatiently with his backpack slung over his clean white t-shirt. He was looking down at his new tennis shoes. The sun glared down on his dark brown face as he hollered. Hurry up, I can't miss another class. Bye, Mom, I said as I put on my cap. She hugged me goodbye. Go straight to school and be careful. Yeah, yeah, I mumbled. Mom is tall, lively, and real smart. Her long blonde hair curls to her shoulders, and her blue eyes used to sparkle. She works as a part-time bookkeeper, and she's a neat freak. But since Marcus died, she's let herself go and doesn't seem to care much about anything except me. She cries a lot, forgets things she's supposed to do, and hardly ever smiles. She doesn't fix her hair anymore, and she's been calling in sick to work. A couple days earlier, I'd even seen her push Dad away when he tried to kiss her goodbye. That's not like her. They usually hug and kiss so much it's embarrassing. Mom followed us down the stairs, out the door and onto the street. I turned around annoyed. Mom, come on, let me be, I said.
She just stood there and stared. Halfway down the block, I looked over my shoulder and saw her moving inside. Ever since Marcus had died, Mom hovered around me like a shadow. I knew she was afraid, but it was beginning to bug me. Alex and I had to walk an extra block to get to school because I didn't want to walk past the place where Marcus had been shot, see the bloodstains on the sidewalk. Gave me the creeps. As Alex and I walked down the hot pavement, started thinking about how stupid it had all been. Marcus and a guy named Jeffrey had had an argument after school about drugs or something. Jeffrey told Marcus that if he didn't pay him soon, he'd be sorry. Marcus told him to lay off and to get out of my face. They swore at each other. Marcus pushed Jeffrey and walked off. I caught up with Marcus and asked him what the argument was all about. He said, forget it. It's nothing. The guy's a jerk. But Jeffrey hadn't forgot about it. He and some of his friends had followed us. He came up behind Marcus and shot him, cold-blooded in the back. Without saying a word, Jeffrey ran away. I hate his guts. So does my dad. He says, I hope that kid burns in hell. It feels weird to feel so much hatred towards someone. I don't even know. The hatred is burning me up. I feel consumed and repulsed by my rage. Jeffrey doesn't look any different than anyone else. Would I kill him if I had the chance? What made him shoot my brother? Why did he snap? Why did I survive when Marcus died? Alex and I got to school and sat down at our desks just as the bell rang. I was still thinking about Marcus. Jeremy, hello, are you with us? I looked up and saw the entire class staring at me. Yeah, what? I mumbled. Mr. Taylor looked amazed. I asked three times if you've turned in your report yet, he said. Don't you hear me? I came out of my haze. No, I forgot to finish it. Uh, can I turn it in tomorrow? Mr. Taylor looked at me sternly and said quietly, Yeah, if you promise to see me after class for a minute. Sure, I replied. That was close, I thought. I haven't even started that stupid report. I like Mr. Taylor, but homework and school didn't mean much to me anymore. Mr. Taylor was a burly man who'd been in the Navy, traveled all around the world. He knew things. You couldn't con him about anything. After the other kids had left the room, I slowly walked up to Mr. Taylor's small metal desk. Looking at the door, I said, uh, What's up? Are you okay, Jeremy? You don't seem to be paying attention anymore. You weren't like this before, you know, your brother and all. I think your insides are hurting and you need some help. I'm okay, it's nothing. I'll get that report done by tomorrow, I lied. Inside, I felt like I was about to burst. Nobody has said anything until now. Everyone knew what had happened, but they wouldn't talk to me about it. It was like they were scared I could, it could happen to them or something. Mr. Taylor looked at me a long time. I turned and shouted, It's none of your damn business. Mr. Taylor didn't flinch. I quickly controlled myself. I'm sorry, I said. I'll be fine. Mr. Taylor said, I'm going to talk to your parents and the school counselor. You need some help. 
I'll talk to the counselor if you want, I blurted. But please don't talk to my parents. They'll get real mad. He agreed to that and told me he understood. When Ox and I headed home, he asked, What did Mr. T want? Who knows, I answered. Something about a counselor. He wants me to talk to someone about Marcus. Alice just said, Oh. He looked down at the ground and got real quiet. He didn't say anything the rest of the way home. That wasn't like Alex. Usually I couldn't get him to shut up. A week later, a short, dark-haired lady with rainbow-colored scarf tied around her neck came into Mr. Taylor's class. I'd seen her around the school, but I wasn't sure who she was. She walked directly to my desk. Jeremy? I'm Mrs. Sanchez, the school counselor. She put out her hand for me to shake. It was warm and strong. Mr. Taylor said you'd agree to talk with me a little. Is that so? Reluctantly, I replied, yeah, I guess so. Mrs. Sanchez led me to her office, next to the library, closed the door, inviting me to sit in a large, soft chair. I knew right away this was not going to be fun. How are you doing? She asked as I stared at a bright blue painting on the wall. Fine, I said. Did you paint that? I asked, pointing at the picture. I didn't want to talk about Marcus, and I was trying to distract her. No, I didn't. A friend did. Do you like it? She answered. Yeah, it's cool, I said. Do I have to be here? I'm really okay, you know. This is sort of dumb. Maybe, maybe not, she answered. She waited a minute and then said, I heard that you aren't doing too well in school lately. What's up? I don't know. What do you care? I said softly. My hands started to sweat and began to feel a little sick to my stomach. Mrs. Sanchez looked me straight in the eye. It hurts, doesn't it? What? I asked if I didn't know. Your brother's death. My chest and throat felt tight and my hands began to shake. There was nowhere to hide. She'd said it straight out. I don't want to talk about it. Next thing I knew, my eyes and nose were running. Mrs. Sanchez had her arm around my shoulder. It felt like a dam was bursting. Yeah, it hurts, I said between sobs. It, it, hurt, it hurts so bad, I think I'm going nuts. I can't sleep, eat, or think right. My, my insides are turning over. It's not fair. Why did he have to die? Why? She didn't say anything. I could taste the salt from my tears. Mrs. Sanchez handed me a tissue and I wiped my face. Nobody talks about it. My parents are all freaked out and everyone else seems scared. I wish it was over. I want it to stop. I want it to all go away. Mrs. Sanchez told me that what I was feeling was normal. Of course you feel this way. You saw something horrible that changed your life forever. It won't always hurt this bad, but it will take a lot of work and courage for you to learn how to live fully again. She said the images of Marcus dying would eventually fade, come less painful, that it would help for me to talk about them. I agreed to meet with her again. The next time we met, I told her about the nightmares. Seeing Marcus shot over and over, she had me describe the dreams in detail. I felt so helpless and guilty for not being able to do anything to save him. If only I'd seen Jeffrey coming, I could have warned him. I could have yelled for help. If I hadn't been too afraid to move, I could have stopped the bleeding sooner. Reenacting the murder helped me realize there was nothing I could have done to prevent it. 
There is no way I could have known what was going to happen. Mrs. Sanchez called my belief that I had power over things beyond my control, magical thinking. We talked about fears. She helped me understand that I was afraid that what had happened to Marcus could happen to me. She told me that I didn't trust the world anymore and didn't think of it as a safe place. I worried about something happening to my parents, leaving me alone in the world. I was so angry at Jeffrey, I felt like killing him myself. That was really scary because I thought it meant I was becoming just like him. Talking about Marcus each week helped me to sleep and eat better and think more clearly. Didn't take away the pain, sadness, or anger, but it did teach me to not keep those feelings bottled up inside. After I'd been seeing Mrs. Sanchez for about eight weeks, she suggested that my parents and I attend a support group with other people that had a member of their family murdered. I'll go, I said, but I doubt if my parents will. Let me worry about that, Mrs. Sanchez replied. I didn't tell mom and dad. I was afraid they'd get too upset. I guess I was trying to save us all from being hurt again. A few days after Mrs. Sanchez said she was going to call my parents, I heard dad yelling at mom. I put my ear to the wall and listened. No way. Haven't we been through enough I'm not going to talk about something that's over and done with, especially to a bunch of strangers. He's dead and buried. Leave it alone. That sounded just like Dad. Keep it in the family. Ignore it. It will go away. Then I heard crying. He's not gone, and you know it, Mom said loudly. I'd never heard her raise her voice toward Dad before. I listened harder. We think about him all the time. We can't stop pretending anymore. He's dead, but he's still present, and we need to deal with that. We can't keep living this nightmare. It's not working. Jeremy's counselor said the support group might help make a difference. There was a long silence. My dad whispered something. Then I heard a muffled cry. I couldn't make out the rest. Why hadn't they told me how they felt? Were they trying to protect me the same way I was trying to protect them? Jeremy, we're going to a group meeting tomorrow night, and your dad and I would like you to come, Mom said the next morning. Dad looked down at his food and acted like he wasn't listening. Sure, I said. Good. Make sure to be home by six, okay? Yeah, sure, Mom. Sorry I'm late, hon. I had to work overtime, Dad said when he showed up at the group meeting Thursday night. Mom looked at him suspiciously, and he quickly turned away. I think he lied and hadn't wanted to come at all, but changed his mind at the last minute. We were all nervous. It was strange to hear other people talking about their experiences. Nobody in the group had thought such a thing would ever happen to them. The Andersons told us about their 16-year-old daughter, Clara, who had been murdered more than a year ago. Mrs. Anderson said, I couldn't sleep for weeks. I wondered how much pain Clara had suffered before she died. I felt so helpless and alone. She was everything to us. A kid named Robert, who looked like he was about my age, said he had become afraid of the dark because his father had been killed at night. He told us, it's pretty scary out there when the lights go out. Robert was bigger than me, but he seemed jumpy and shy. Candace, a 20-year-old girl with red hair and glasses, said, 
my parents refused to talk about Uncle Jim's death for a long time. They thought it was better that way. My dad felt so bad. He'd had an argument with my uncle the night before he was killed. He wanted to tell Uncle Jim he was sorry, but he couldn't. Dad's never been the same. She fiddled with her necklace. It's been two years already, and Dad still blames himself. An older man with gray hair clenched his fists until his knuckles turned white. Then he blurted out, What gets me the most isn't the fact that the man who killed my son might get out of prison in 15 years, that he never once showed any sorrow or remorse. The woman next to him put her hand on his, and he continued, He robbed my boy of $50, then shot him. Tears dripped down his cheeks. It makes no sense. What's this world coming to? My dad was uncomfortable at first, but after a while, he started nodding his head in agreement with the others. Before the evening was over, he told everyone how fed up he was with the justice system, how his life had been a mess since Marcus was murdered. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. It's maddening. My son's death knocked the wind out of us, and the legal system wouldn't let us catch our breath. When the trial finally started, it felt like an old wound being ripped open. We had no privacy. The story was in the papers and on TV. The boy's lawyer tried to make it sound like it was our son's fault he'd been shot, and then Marcus knew what he was doing when he got involved with drugs. I wanted to scream, shut up, you liar. After the group discussion ended, we stayed and talked for a while. On the way home, Dad told us he was sorry he'd been acting so distant and said, I love you both. You're what keeps me going. That night didn't fix everything, but it helped us to start talking about Marcus and stop acting like his Murder was a secret. The group lasted for 12 weeks. Some of us still call each other up from time to time. I went to Robert's house, went for dinner, and Mom and Dad gave the Andersons rights to some of their court dates. Now we laugh and cry together. We aren't hiding anymore. When Mom gets out of the scrapbook, our emotions still go for a spin, especially when we go to the photos of Marcus on his 17th birthday. He was wearing big baggy pants, had his baseball cap on sideways, and was holding his bit over his face. He tickled me so hard that day, I almost wet my pants. Dad jumped in and wrestled with both of us until we all fell on the floor in a laughing, winded heap. Marcus almost devoured the entire chocolate cake Mom had made before anyone else even got a bite. There's a picture of him opening the gift I gave him. It wasn't much, just a CD of his favorite group. He pretended to kiss me, and I made a fake face like I was going to barf. I always wonder if we'd have done anything different on his birthday if we'd known it would be his last. Alex and I started taking our old route to school again. One day, as we went past the spot where Marcus had been murdered, Alex stopped suddenly and said, Sorry, I never said anything about Marcus, but I didn't know what to say. Didn't want to mess up and hurt your feelings. No big deal, I told him. I didn't know what to say either. It was scary, you know, Alex said. Like it could happen to us, too. It wasn't a television show or something. It was real, man. Too real. Yeah, it's real, all right, I said as I looked up. It's okay to talk about it now. It doesn't freak me out as much as it did before. 
Talking with Mrs. Sanchez and going to that group wasn't bad. Mr. T was right. I was was hurting real bad. When I went to bed that evening, I slid my hand under my pillow, pulled out the leather baseball mitt Marcus had thrown to me seconds before he was shot. The leather still smelled new. Don't worry, bro. I'll take good care of it, I whispered quietly to the darkness. I just put the mitt back under my pillow when I swear I heard him answer, You'd better. I turned on the light and looked around. Nobody was there. I wasn't scared, though. Somehow, I knew that Marcus would always be with me. I turned off the light, sank into the mattress. Sleep had never felt so good. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. To learn more about Pat Beckley and Gabriel Constance, please visit our website at www.relatable-media.com. And that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a story that you want us to catch, submit it on our website at www.relatable-media.com. Thank you for listening. And whether you are at home or on the road, we hope you catch this story.